on the property experience, our hosts Zarko Jokic and Anna Porter will take you behind the curtain of the property market Australia-wide. Welcome to another edition of the Property Experience. As usual on the Property Experience, today is all about giving you the information you need and surrounding you with the smartest people available. Today, the smart people in the room are Steve Polisi from Suburbanite. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Zaka. And Pete Smith from Astute Finance. Welcome, Pete. Thanks, Zaka. So if you are Bob the Builder, there has never been a better time to be an Australian. If you are a builder or a person involved in the tradesperson game, you are run off your feet. Try to call a tradesperson today. The best case scenario is... Early August, possibly late July. Walk down any given street on in any suburb in Australia and people are renovating, people are building. All of this activity involves finance and this is where Pete Smith from Astute Finance comes in. Pete knows the construction and renovation finance game. So, Pete, if people are borrowing to build, where should they start? Thank you. I think the main thing is actually chatting to someone like a mortgage broker or a lender first because there's probably no point chatting to builders until you know what you can actually borrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally it's getting that pre-approval in place first on the finance side Yes. and setting that limit. So whether it's construction and just working out what you can do on a land and build uh, in terms of your borrowing capacity or whether it's just looking at how to structure even renovation finance and just borrowing extra funds for renovations on a property that you already own. And what's involved in getting a pre-approval for, firstly, construction? Let's look at that. What's involved from a, a, a borrower's point of view? So it's it's pretty much treated just like normal lending in terms of the ratios, the rules and things like that and, and around your income assessment. So mm. so it's you can still generally borrow up to sort of 95% of, a, of the land and the build value, yes. construction value. So it's similar sort of deposits, just some different benefits and things out there at the moment with government grants and stamp duty exemptions and things like that. But yeah, so it's, so it's still sort of treated in a similar way. So I suppose it's providing all the basic financials going through the normal process of getting pre-approved. Yes. Um, once they're pre, pre-approved to borrow that set amount of land value and build value, then at that point, they're sort of in a good position to start chatting to builders and looking at land. You mentioned some government grants. Are you able to give us a bit of a headline on some of the grants available at the moment? Uh, there's been a lot of grants available for probably about the last sort of 12 months, two years. Yes. A lot of that stuff has sort of just started to expire. Okay. Sort of so just in that sort of home builder grant space, mm. sort of been one of the main ones. So it was it was originally about $25,000. Yes. Uh, building, basically just building a place to live in. So it didn't even need to be a first home buyer. Okay. Um, that then sort of dropped back to about fifteen grand at the sort of back end of last year. Yeah. Um, depending on the build contract date, and, and then that's sort of just peeled away now and sort of expired. So so that 15K, sort of the home builder grant that a lot of people talk about, that's sort of out the way now. Yeah, on the way out. Um, there's still the first home owner grants. Okay. So sort of new build, uh, first home, then it's $10,000 mm. basically. So with that same thing, you sort of want to know where you sit um, on the finance side beforehand because it's something that you'll only qualify basically if you fit certain sort of parameters. So they've got 
max land and build values and things like that and okay. certain rules in place to get those sort of benefits. And is that part of the conversation you're having with people when they first come to you with the with the common idea, as I said, walk down any given street in any suburb, there's a lot of renovation and construction going on. Is that something you open their eyes to, the possibilities of these grants and the, and the different ways to structure the finance? Yeah, 100%. So I suppose when we run through the analysis straight up, I suppose the first thing that we sort of do is identify sort of what price point they're in based yes. on the location. Okay. Because that's pretty quickly going to decide where they sit. So yeah. someone in Sydney is going to struggle to keep under sort of the price, like the land and the build thresholds. Mm. Um, even established properties, like you're only really looking at six fifty. Yes. Sort of for an established property for no stamp duty as a first home buyer, for instance. Okay. So, so all those sort of things we analyse at the start and, yes. and then sort of run through, explain sort of what they're eligible for because that'll help them make decisions as to whether it's worthwhile worrying about the benefits. Mm whether they're going to get the benefits yeah. and, and if they do get the benefits, how it's going to help on the finance side. So there's a little bit of a cost benefit discussion, whether the juice is worth the squeeze on, on going through the process of putting your hand up for these benefits. But if their overarching goal exceeds the benefit, really just go for the overarching goal. Yeah, hundred percent. So I suppose probably what we're seeing a lot at the moment is the big decision for first home buyers to, especially living in Sydney, Mm. is deciding to go down the owner-occupied path um, to get the benefits, yes. which the majority of them are realising it's just not going to happen. Okay. And then they're going down the rent-vest path. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And you're seeing a bit of that, uh, rent-vesting in 2021? A lot of that, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So so it generally, because once they're over that price point, if there's no benefits there, um, even with the stamp duty, if they're essentially paying full stamp duty, getting no benefits, mm. then they're going to get the same cost as pretty much an investment purchase in terms of benefits-wise. So then the conversation goes, plan B, what else you got? Yeah. And you go down the rent vesting part. Yeah, yeah. So it starts to sort of talk about, okay, from an investment point of view, as an ongoing renter, then where do they sit from a finance point of view? Yeah. Say, say I'm a first-time buyer and I want to be an owner-occupier and I do want to do a land and build. How would the pre-approval look like that? Is it just a maximum number of this is how much you can borrow and then they have to go out and they'll have to calculate land cost versus build cost and things like that? Yeah, pretty much. So so say you're looking at, like you know in the area it's 500 grand for a block of land and you're looking at say 450 for a general for a build price um, and then you've got a 10% deposit, they'll basically, you'd be putting down your 10% on the land and your 10% on the build. Generally it's in two two parts it's two part process so with most of the situation most of the time you'll generally settle on the land first um, and you'll end up with a land loan that you're then starting to make repayments on uh, and then the build loan will normally settle within sort of one or two months after that because but generally from when the land registers if it's unregistered land um, there's a bit of time it takes to sort of do so site tests, soil tests, finalise build contracts. So what, like what would the pre-approval look like though? So would you just come back and say you've got a million dollars total to spend? Uh, yeah, 100%. Okay. Yeah. So do you ever see buyers get into trouble where they might have a million dollars to spend and they'll go buy $600,000 worth of land and then think, oh, I can knock over a house for 400000 and it comes back at five fifty? Yeah, which is, so I suppose the benefit with a pre-approval, that's really just the bank going, look, this is what you can do based on what we've assessed, but that still can be changed at any point. Yep. Um, if it is their max, then we'll generally stress to them the importance of sort of looking at fixed price build contracts, yep. talking to builders about 
Um, so some builders do have fixed price build contracts where the price won't change regardless of what happens, generally. Other builders uh, will have a fixed price contract but subject to site costs, which all of a sudden could be a blowout of 10, 15, 20K. Um, the other part that generally a lot of people have got to watch out for is around variations. That's probably one of the biggest things in the construction industry. So um, you'll always have a base build price, but the problem is when you want that better carpet, that 40 mil bench top rather than 20 mils, it's, it's generally the extras that can average 20, 30K difference. Yep. And if you haven't sort of already allowed that little buffer in your finance, then you're going to get caught out there yeah, as well. I've, I've done a duplex development and yep. same thing. You get the stock standard quote and then even things like in the bathroom, it'll only be tiles halfway up the wall. And they say, do you want the full way up the wall? And it, it adds up. It can be potentially 50, 60 grand I've seen quite easily. Yeah. So these are hidden costs that you don't, uh, uncover until you actually get deep into the project itself. Yeah. 100%. And the, the yeah. problem is you're too far down the rabbit hole. You've paid your big deposits, you've bought the land, you've, you've kind of locked into either sacrificing what you wanted and getting the deal done or spending that extra money. Yeah, yeah. So I, was, I suppose the biggest thing where I see a lot of people get caught out, um, one would be around the extra cost, the variation, site cost, things like that. Mm. Um, the other part is actually around the deposits. So you can actually get finance to borrow 95% of the land and the bill cost and only have to put in a 5% deposit from the finance side. But the issue is when you buy that block of land, they're still they're going to want their 10% deposit, the land estate, and then the builder may want between 5 or 10% deposit. So you're going to have to put those cash deposits down early, even though technically you're borrowing more on the loan. So that's the other spot that you've got to watch out for is that you've sort of, before you lock yourself into the land and build, you've got to know what out-of-pocket costs are that you've got to pay off to the land and the build guys prior to the finance going through as well. Yep. Well, what are your thoughts on the land and builds where they offer like a 5% deposit, but then that's normally when the land's settling a couple of years later, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of those off-the-plan unregistered land um, sort of ones, it, it's similar to off-the-plan units, townhouses, all those sort of things as well. Like you've got that slight risk that, you can't really finance it until a couple of months out from sort of registration of the block. So you've sort of got to really run what we generally do is even if it's 12 months, two years, we sit right through everything with the clients and just make sure they know exactly where they've got to sit by the time that date comes um, because they're still going to have to put that 10% down or 5% down on the land and build up front before they commit to that. They want to know from today it's still technically services um, from a capacity point of view, but um, from an investment point of view, I think we're seeing a lot of clients doing quite well in that space. Yep. So I'm sort of basically just going through the process on an investment land and build myself. Um, I sort of went into that land and build cost about 18 months ago. It's probably cost me about 500k land and build. Uh, today's market, sort of 18 months later, it's worth about 675. Um, haven't paid a cent of interest yet. So, because the land, you don't actually start committing repayments and the finance side doesn't kick in until when that land registers. So, similar to off-the-plan units and other purchases, you can sort of do well depending on the market. I was going to say, it's yeah. all dependent on the market. It if depends. the market's going the other way, then um, you can you, go the other way. you can potentially well. not be able to obtain finance as well and then you have to fire sale almost. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So projected values are an important part of this equation when you're sitting down with clients. Is that right, Pete? Yeah, like it's it's sort of something that a lot of people won't think about when they're doing land and build because they're just thinking of building what they want. Mm. But what you sort of want to know is at the end of the day, you want to know you're not overcapitalizing yeah. when you're going into that total cost. So generally what I say is just have a look at the market in that area, 
for what you're doing the land and the build. You just want to make sure that it's going to be worth that end value based on what's selling out there. Mm. And you, want, you want to buy to the fundamentals. Like any investment, whether it's existing or new, you want to make sure that those macro factors are there, the infrastructure, the population growth, um, yeah. the, the walk scores, all that type of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So all of those factors come into choosing the location, but in terms of getting the deal done, this projected value is really important. You talked about land value and then, and then the value of the property after completion. Are you able to share some insight into how the lender determines what the value of the project is at various stages? Because I think that can sometimes come as a rude shock to some borrowers. Yeah, so it can go quite a few different ways. So like the, the general rule is the banks and the valuers want to work off just land and construction cost. Okay. The valuers want to try and be generally pretty conservative yeah. as, as what most people find. So, But at the same time, they can't deny market value. Mm. Sort of thing. They're still going to take into account comparable sales and things. Yes. So, if you go into um, the banks, will consider on completion value. Okay. Um, generally, if it's been more than twelve months since the original land contract date. Okay. That you that you bought the land, exchanged, and signed into. So, what that might mean is if you've thrown down a ten percent deposit on the land, ten percent on the build, and all of a sudden market values increase by ten percent in that sort of twelve months time. Yeah all of a sudden you might actually be borrowing 80% of the total land and build value, mm-hmm. even though technically you're still borrowing 90%, yeah. the same figure. Mm. So all of a sudden you've just avoided $10,000 in mortgage insurance. Yeah. So so it can work in the favour that way. Yes. But it can also go the other way where you go into a land and build, values drop by 10%. The bank's going to work off the lower of the land, of the valuation versus the land and build price. Mm. And all of a sudden you're going to have to make up that difference um, in cash savings. Okay. So you sort of, you just don't want to go into a land and build with about a thousand, two thousand dollars to spare, sort of scraping it mm. in. Generally, you want to have a decent size sort of buffer. Yeah. So yeah. the key thing is you got to have that wiggle room. You got to have that breathing space. Should the market turn against what you want to happen? Yeah. 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 What What would be worst case scenario? Market dropped. You couldn't afford the dif- difference. Do the banks just take hold of the property, fire sale, and then you'll owe the banks? Uh, yeah. Generally, if they've already sort of settled. So yeah, if the, so normally you're going to sell on the land first generally and then you've already put the deposit down on the build so it's usually too late to sort of try and pull out. Um, first option is to try and on-sell the block knowing that the build and the figures aren't going to work because yep. um, technically you wouldn't have settled on the builders yet. You, they'll yep. value it before you've settled on the build to see what that on finished value is. Yep. Um, but at the same time, you've already put that 5% down with the builder, you're up to lose that as well. So... So the bank's going to try and on-sell the block, repossess their funds there. You're still potentially going to be out of pocket with the bill costs. So um, probably a key thing to always sort of check on that basis is when you do buy unregistered land or certain blocks, whether you can actually on-sell the block um, because a lot of estates have restrictions there too where they don't want you on-selling and flipping blocks. Yep. So you've got to just sort of just check that you're not going to get caught out in that space as well. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, so generally at the end of the day, the bank will just want back what they've lent essentially and if the block sale clears that then yep. then you're fine but yeah yeah and how common are these block sales you talk about uh at the moment the construction industry is absolute booming so there's a huge amount of land sales going so mm. so that even just down we are in sort of the illawarra region it's a it's about a 15-year project okay. so 
pretty much the next 15 years of land releases. Yeah, have been mapped out. Have been sort of mapped out. And then sort of southwestern Sydney, yes. quite a lot of other areas into sort of throughout the state. Yeah. So it's um, yeah, population growth, providing houses, yeah. uh, lack of rentals, all that sort of stuff is all sort of still driving that. Protecting people in their investments and also in their projects. So we talked a little bit about house and land packages. What about renovations? Seeing a lot of renovations as we, you know, go about our day. How are renovation loans different? Yeah, so the renovations always goes into a bit of a tricky space because essentially it depends on sort of what you're looking to do with the renovations. Oh, really? So the generally a lot of people want to do renovations themselves yes which is almost technically own a builder or yeah okay self self arrange um so it's sort of if, if you sort of generally say you're looking to put in a new kitchen for forty thousand mm. dollars new bathroom for twenty thousand dollars yes and you're getting the individual trades to do the work yes um a lot of lenders won't take that added value into account okay so you sort of got to hope that you've got enough equity in your place as it is to still borrow those funds mm without worrying about the added value. So it becomes almost like a vanity project. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you're going to get the end value in the end, but the bank's not going to, they're going to ignore it. Yeah. Basically. Okay. There is certain lenders that will actually take that added value into account. Yes. Ju- and just off those quotes. Okay. Um, outside of a build contract. Mm. The general rule is re- even renovations, they generally want it in a build contract. Okay. So a fixed price contract through a yes. licensed builder. Yeah. Uh, doesn't suit most people because you're basically paying the builder to project manage mm. those trades, which will generally cost a bit more. Yeah, okay. Do you only have to have applied one quote or do they have two? Some lenders have three. Yeah, you can have multiple quotes. So, so yeah, so if you're teeing up multiple trades and do a sort of a couple of hundred grand reno around the house, then, then yeah, there, there is lenders that will take that into account and then allows you to sort of run those trades. Um, what would stop someone, say, getting three quotes for major renovations? One of them comes in 100000 another one comes in 80000 then the third one comes in 60000 presenting the $100,000 quote and then using the $60,000 one. So that's generally still fine. So a lot of the situations where the bank are taking into account the value of those quotes, the fact they're taking it into account, they won't just dump that money in your account. Yep. They'll want to pay those payments directly to the builder, similar to the way a, a bill contract would work. Um, if you end up changing quotes based on unavailability of a builder or they're just not around or simply a better quote, better price, they'll allow you to change quotes as long as in the end it's the same level of work and the same amount of work that you were putting in on the first quote. Yep. Um, it's generally not a drama. Right, so. so with the, the minor renovations where you might be doing it yourself, they'll just give you a redraw and you'll refinance? Is that typically how it works? Yeah, so that's the other space. Like, if, if you're just taking out um, a small amount of funds for just renovations yourself, you're not you're not getting anyone to come in and and sort of do anything for you. It's non-structural. It's just fixing up decks and gutters and a bit of roofing and things like that. It's same again. There's certain levels of of cash out where you can actually just as long as the equity is in your property. Yeah. They'll just put those funds in your account, and you can just organise yeah. it. Yourself. And, and the serviceability, I assume, and, as well. and the capacity yeah. side of it as well. Yeah. Okay. So with the renovations where people are turning a two-bedroom terrace into a four-bedroom, you know, mini mansion, I imagine they're a little bit different? Yeah, so straight away it's going to be structural. So they're the same. They're, they're going to want – and generally as soon as they're, do, they're structural, they're going to want a licensed builder okay. doing that structural work. So, yeah. Um, so they'll, they'll want the fixed-price build contract, um, but they'll then, because there's that fixed-price build contract there, they'll take that added value into account. 
mm. and value it based on the on completion value. So even though it's technically a renovation, it's often treated as a construction. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. It, and it gets funded the same way. So there's going to be drawdowns, progressive drawdowns and a drawdown yeah. schedule requirements. It's going to have to be through a HIA or MBA contracts and things okay. like that. Talk us through yeah. progressive drawdowns. How do they work? So generally... Uh, most drawdowns are usually over five stages. Okay. So it's usually sort of your slab, your framework, your lining, sort of your lock-up and completion and things like that. Okay. Um, a lot of builders change. So a lot of builders will request different percentages. Yes. That's probably one of our painful games of working with the banks so based on what so the So you're between want. the consumer, the lender, and the builder and trying the builder. to make the money flow? Yeah. So the consumer's at the mercy of the builder deciding what progress payments they want. Yes. Um, we're at the mercy of hoping the builder puts the standard progress payments because essentially that's what the lender's going to want. Yeah. So they've got a set sort of criteria, most lenders, as to mm. what those percentages need to be. Um, so it might be sort of maximum 20% in the first stage, including deposit, yep. then 20 then 20 then no less than 10 on the final stage sort of thing. So okay. um Generally, the the argument a lot of builders have is there actually isn't a HIA standard in New South Wales, mm. for instance. So yeah. their argument is we can technically do what we want. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the lenders will still be pretty strict on that. So probably another thing with construction loans that people just need to keep an eye out and up front before they enter into the build contract is to get a bit of an idea as to what those drawdown percentages are going to be requested. Okay. Just for, yeah. for those who don't know, can you explain what HIA and those acronyms are? Yeah, so just the housing industry of Australia, essentially. So that's who all the builders essentially need to sort of build through. There's there's them and uh, I think the other one's Master Builders Association, yep. MBA. So um, they're just sort of who the builders are essentially bound by. Yep, the governing body. Yep. The governing body. They set some guidelines for conduct and, yep. and yeah. process. Yeah. Now you meant um, confidence can be a blessing as well as a curse. You mentioned owner builders before and I – in my experience, owner builders are very confident at the start of the process, and then that confidence can wane throughout the process. Is there anything budding owner builders tuning in today need to know? Definitely a much more restrictive space. Okay, and why is that? Uh, just based on past history, obviously from the lender side, like not from what I've seen or essentially what some others have seen, but the lenders have sort of been hit in a lot of times where an owner builder's got to the end of the build contract, obviously because he decides what he's doing and the price yes. changes his mind throughout the build. Yeah. And there's added costs or things come in a lot more than what he originally planned. Yeah. Gets to the end and there's a 50 to 100K shortfall to finish it off. Okay. Uh, issue with that is the banks won't generally increase funding during construction. Mm. They're always more than happy to finish a finish, revisit the finished product. Yeah. And, and then look at re-lending based on it finished, depending on the situation. So so it gets caught in this space where the owner builder can't finish the place. Out of cash, right? Out of cash. Yeah. The bank can't lend additional funds during a build. Yeah. So it's just caught in this nowhere yeah. sort of space. So so because of that, it's sort of brought a lot of restrictions in where they sort of generally won't go to more than sort of 60% mm. of, the, of the actual land and build value. Okay. So a lot lower ratio essentially just to yes. – bit safer for themselves um some out there may potentially go to 80 percent, but yeah it's just nowhere near the sort of 95 percent you can sort of do with yeah. a licensed builder and i understand yeah. the ones that have an increased ratio are usually requiring the owner builder to be a licensed builder yeah yeah well well that's see that's one thing um even licensed builders 
who are building houses will mm. still get treated as an owner builder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though it's their house. Right? Even though it's their house, yeah. and and they and they might be knocking up other builds, and so will myself, who's never picked up a hammer before, mm. will get treated as an owner builder yeah. with the same restrictions as a licensed builder. Understand, so, yeah. So it's a bit funny in that space. That's where sometimes you can sort of feel a bit sorry for the licensed builder who yeah. is knocking up houses that has the same restrictions. Yeah, I, I do understand that though because they are a licensed builder. They'll know what corners they can cut and, and cover things up and things like that. So there is a protective thing just from insurance point of view and, and yeah. safety. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. And I suppose when you're building your own place at the end of the day, you, you're generally going to spend more than what you're planning. Exactly. And if, <laughs> if they were looking to potentially flip the property as well, yeah. they might cut corners knowing, oh, yeah, I've just signed this off, it should be fine, and then they sell it on to someone who does the notes who hadn't, know how it's been. Yeah. yeah. And so. it can come down to priority as well. If I'm a builder and I'm working on my own project or I've got three other projects on the go that I know are going to get me money coming into the business, I'm going to prioritise those. Yep. And then this gets pushed back, pushed back, pushed back, cash runs out. And you've, you, you can drive around any neighbourhood and you can spot some owner-builder projects in, in, in um, action. People often say it's like that uh, episode of The Simpsons where Homer got to design his own car. <laughs> he drove a car all his life. It doesn't mean the car turned out a success. So let's talk a little bit about success, Pete. What are some tips you want to give people who are looking at the um, long road ahead? Sometimes it is a long road ahead of renovation or construction projects. What are the tips you want to give to people to improve their chance of success? I think the biggest thing is before you start worrying about chatting to builders and um, just any renovation groups, whether it's granny flats, just anything. Yes. Um, go through the finance side first. Make sure you can borrow what you need to work out what the restrictions are based on your circumstances, what you qualify for, any benefits. Um, work out all those limits first. Yes. Because if you and then get that pre-approval in place. Yeah. Um, because at least you've got that peace of mind. Then when you start talking to builders, you already know what your price limits are. Um, you already know where you sit from that side. So mm. that's. Do, do lenders treat different types of construction different? And what I mean by that is, say I'm an investor and I've got a big block of land with an old house on it, and I'm looking, I'm not sure whether to build a granny flat, knock it down, do a duplex, or knock it down and build a brand new house. Would it be best to talk to like a town planner first and then the lender, or would the lender you come back and just say, look, this is your maximum, now go off and see what you can actually do with the construction? Still still probably the lender first. Um, if you, As long as you have a basic idea of what you're thinking of doing, um, we're going to sort of know where the lenders sit as to what their comfortability is around yeah, that appetite so, is for it. and their appetite. So, so certain lenders will go up to six, seven, eight dwellings on a single title. Yep. Some will only go to two, some won't even do two. Okay. Um, they've all got different rules. So that's why you sort of really want to know sort of what you're looking to do first before you even arrange the pre-approval because that will sort of guide you to which lender that you're going to look yeah. to use in the first place as well. So... So it's always good to sort of, it might be a matter of even just bouncing back and forth and sort of working through what your plans are first. Then you might chat to someone like a mortgage broker, explain what you're looking to do. They might give you a few ideas to go away and have a chat to then town planners and builders and stuff first to sort of get an idea on what the final situation is going to be. Okay. Uh, are there any rules for once I've finished a construction or a major renovation, how quickly I can go back to the lender and refinance and pull out, pull out equity potentially to buy another one? Pretty much as soon as it's finished. So as soon as that place is locked up, um, you've done landscaping, fencing, driveways, everything's all finished, yep. um, then usually you're in a position where you can revisit it. There are certain lenders, though, that 
they'll generally want from settlement, they'll want at least six months okay. of payment history and things like that before they revisit lending additional money. So it does slightly differ between different lenders. Yep. Okay. Um, so same, if you know you've got a certain sort of time frame on, say, you're knocking up the first house and you want to straight away go and build a dwelling out the back or a granny flat or something else, yep. you sort of want to know what the rules are with that lender before you go and lock yourself in. Yep. Right, so when they're talking to the mortgage broker, they need to tell them those plans so they can yep. choose the right lender for that situation. Yeah, it's, it's always best to just go literally through everything with the broker, no matter whether it's, you're going to do it or not. Just any sort of hypotheticals just so that you can sort of cover it off, that you're not going to get caught out or pigeonholed at any point down Although the track. I do think brokers hate that. Every single one of my investors <laughs> wants to build a granny flat at some point down the track. In terms of how many do it, probably one in a hundred. Yeah. Look, what we do with that even, um, we generally, if someone's buying a house and looking to do the granny flat down the track, we'll actually pre-prove them up front for the granny flat. And if they don't end up using it, it just drops off and expires anyway. And if they do use it, then at least they know they're already approved before they go through with the other part. Oh, excellent. And it comes down to what we were talking about before. It's not the number you get from the lender. It's how you structure the finance. Yeah. So having those options is, is clearly one of the tips for success. As Pete's mentioned, so many lenders treat this area differently. Trying to run around to all the lenders is just not going to happen. So you've got to sit down with someone who has access to various options, like uh, like Pete, who is a um, mortgage and finance broker, who can help people get those options. And that's the key, getting the options so you understand if you turn left, this is what it looks like. If you go straight, this is what it looks like. If you turn right, what it looks like. It's about understanding what happens before you embark on that journey. The worst thing with any construction project or renovation project is a surprise. So if you can get the surprises out of the way in the initial conversation with someone like Pete, you're well on the way to success. More and more Australians are looking at renovation. More and more Australians are looking at construction because the opportunity to find something that matches what you're looking for in, in existing property is getting less and less. So people are trying to create their own reality rather than find their own reality. Any other tips that uh, you want to give the uh, listeners today, Pete, in this space of construction and renovation? Uh, it's just definitely just make sure you sort of shop around. Um, I suppose a lot of people work into the, walk into the first sort of builder. Okay. Shop your builder, yes? Shop the builder. Okay. Um, just have a list of questions before you go in there though. So, mm. um, and generally it's best to already have the block of land in mind before you even go in to start chat to builders because the builders generally won't be able to give you even a price if they don't even know the site that you're looking to build on. Okay. So a lot of people will go to display villages, display homes up front, yeah. start looking at the houses, which is always fun, but mm. the um, but without a block in mind. So it's sort of it's best to actually identify the block first. Yes. Take the basic sort of site plan of that block into the builders and then just get them to start putting some prices in front and have a list of questions around things like, is the price fixed? Um, will there be any changes at any point in the price? Does it include site costs? Okay. If it doesn't include site costs, will there be a rough idea of what the site costs are going to be? Yeah. Um, what are the inclusions with the build? Um, just so that you know roughly what you're going to get hit with in terms of variations because some builders' base price actually includes some nice inclusions throughout and you okay. don't really have much change yeah. um, in the final build price. But then other builders, 
Uh, it doesn't even include floorboards, skirting boards, lights, mm. um, absolute basic things that you know that you're going to need and all of a sudden you've got massive price increases. Yeah. So as, as with any contract, you always get it run it through with a solicitor and I'd actually show your broker as well and say, look, this is what they're planning and this is how they, because you'll, you'll offer some good advice as well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And you often guide people saying, if you haven't done this before, here's some questions we recommend you ask and then compare and contrast. Because if you have consistent questions, you can yep. sort of compare apples with apples. Yeah, yeah. And that's the main difference between a good broker and a bad broker. A bad broker would just say, oh, yeah, you can borrow a million dollars, get on with it. A good one will ask those questions to make sure they're covered. Yeah. And then just guiding them through the process as well. So the, um, I think the construction process is quite daunting. Um, you sort of, it, it's quite drawn out, quite lengthy. Uh, you're constantly paying money out in different stages over a long period of time without the warning sort yeah. of thing. So you sort of want to have that basic idea at, at what point am I going to have to start paying deposits here, deposits okay. there and all that sort of stuff. I, so. I haven't heard of anyone ever say it's not a stressful process doing a, a land and build. Every single person says you'll be pulling your hair out the whole way through the process. And is that, Steve, because people underestimate what blood, sweat and tears goes into the project? Exactly right. Yeah. There's just a thousand variances and questions yeah. that they're going to be asking. you, And then you're, you're sort of managing it, but you're not. You still need to be aware of each step in the process. And then the broker is going to be providing you documents throughout. The builder is going to provide you with documents throughout. So it's, and it's like you said, it's a quite a long drawn out process. It's not just a two week here you go. It's six to 12 months sometimes. Yeah. And there's a lot of things outside of everyone's control. So the builder's not going to know what's going to happen once they put stuff to council, they don't know how long council's going to take. Council could be a lot of people are dying to get in the place, but yes. then and then they finally get to the end thinking that the builder's going to kick off, but then it's got another twelve weeks through council, things mm. like that. So there's just constantly unforeseen sort yeah. of things that sort of pop up. So it's it's just having that basic understanding of that process up front just makes it a lot less stressful. If you know what to expect, unexpected turns are. Less, less of a surprise. And, and I think also one of the fundamental things that um, you get out of a consultation with someone like Pete is they map out what options and what variables are involved in this project from beginning to end. Because there are so many moving parts in any renovation or construction project. If you know that going in, you can almost prepare yourself for what the journey looks like ahead. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, no, 100%. Okay, excellent. So as usual, the property experience is all about surrounding you with the smartest people you can get access to. Thank you very much, Pete Smith, for joining us today from Astute Finance. It's okay. And thank you very much to my co-host, Steve Polisi. Thanks, Zaka. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the property experience. Stay tuned for more great content.